Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so thrilled today to be joined by the wonderful Lena Dunham, who is the writer, director, and producer of Catherine Called Birdie. And I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the the journey that you've had in getting this film made, because you originally optioned it about 10 years ago. So you've had a long period of time in development and really sitting with the breadth of this story and what it's meant to you. Um, And then additionally, you had a production pause in 2020 as well, um, which you've said really allowed you to flesh out the relationship a lot between Birdie and her father and through both of these time periods of being able to really sit with the material I was interested in how that really allowed you over time to add a lot more layers and textures into the way that you've told this story on screen it's a great question and thank you so much for having me really appreciate it um you know I think all artists when we have an idea we want to make it we want to get it done there's that incredible urge that obsessive urge to be doing it and so especially because this story means so much to me. I first read the book when I was 10. I knew that I wanted to make the movie as soon as I knew I wanted to make movies. And so the pauses in getting it made at the time felt brutal in a way. I mean, I optioned the work and I was still making girls at that time. So my schedule was really, really full. And so it didn't allow for the time necessary to really, I mean, a movie takes every ounce of you for, you know, basically two years. And so, and then it was also hard for me to make people, this wasn't a movie that could be done. You know, I wished I could shoot it in my backyard, but unfortunately I didn't have, you know, with a camcorder, but unfortunately I didn't have the, uh, all of the medieval um, accoutrement that were needed, but it was hard for me to get people who were in a position to greenlight it, to understand exactly why this story needed to get told. You know, it wasn't about a teenage girl who had superpowers or a sexy vampire boyfriend or, you know, special skills. It was just about a teenage girl who really was grappling with the questions we all have. Who am I? How do I fit into the world? How do I fit into the family I was born into? Um, And so it took me a while to find those right partners. Ultimately in 2018, I met Tim Bevan at Working Title who understood what the movie could be. And really I'm lucky because at every moment that the movie could have paused, he told me that we were going to be able to keep going. And so I wrote the wrote the film, we were getting ready to shoot. And then March, 2020, we were, I was in London, ready to go about to, about to begin. And then um, we all had this pause. And of course, you know, my film stopping was not the most um, important or um, terrifying thing that happened during COVID. But as we all know, having your life paused and having your passions put on hold can be really frustrating. But the thing that was amazing is like, I really do believe that creative projects really do happen in perfect time because ultimately that pause allowed me to go deeper into the story, understand, work with the actors, particularly Andrew Scott to deepen the character arcs, to give the end what it really, really truly needed. And then ultimately it really just allowed me to hunker down. I think I ended up making another film in the interim, my um, a small independent film called Sharpstick, but it was my first time making a feature in over 10 years. And I needed that experience to be able to do what Birdie required of me. And then I ended up back in England, you know, over a year later. And that is when I met my husband as well. So it's like every, so had the movie happened at the beginning, I would have shot and been long gone before 
you know, uh, February, 2021, when my husband walked into my life and also so much of what the film is and the relationships in it came out, the script changed even more when I met my husband and there were certain things like the parents' marriage that I was able to deepen and understand more deeply. There's one particular monologue that I wrote that was very much about falling in love and being in love that I would have been, I think the film was a little bit more pessimistic before I had that um, experience. It was a little bit more like men are trash and then then it changed. So, so I do think that these things occur the way that they're supposed to. And that's something that I tried to tell every artist I meet who is frustrated that a project is not getting off the ground or not being seen is that, Things happen the way they're supposed to, and then they find the audience that they're supposed to. And it may not always occur on the timeline that we're hoping for, but it does It does occur. I really, really love that. And, and speaking of the parents' relationship, you know, I, I think there's something really wonderful in having these two parents who really love and adore their daughter and they see everything she is in the world because they've both been versions of that. You know, you have that that scene where Billy Piper's character is talking to her about, you know, I, I used to be very rambunctious when I was younger and very willful, but I learned that I needed to be more this way for the world. Um, and I believe there was a scene with Andrew Scott that didn't make the final version as well, where he talked about how he used to be a dancer growing up. And again, you know, the world perceived him differently to how he wanted to be seen and how he wanted to exist. Um, and so how did you want to set about within their relationship also creating creating these parallels and this emotional intimacy and understanding that they have of their daughter in the way that you have. Well, I love that you picked up on that. And it was really something I talked to Andrew and Billy about both, which was this idea that so often in our families, especially the people who have the most tension are the people who actually mimic each other. And that's something, I mean, growing up, my mother, who I'm, you know, more similar to than I ever have wanted to say, like when we fought the most was I think when she saw me behaving in a way that sort of like mimicked her earlier life and made her ultimately scared for me and trying to really tap into also the idea that these parents are limiting her and in an ideal world, they would let her live the way she wanted to, but in their minds, it is a form of protection and how for so many parents control or um, or judgment is a form of protection because the world is so complex and they have fear for their children. And so trying to pick up on that and make sure that the parents weren't just these, you know, authoritarians who were raining down terror on their child, but that actually they were responding to a world that put them into very specific boxes as well. And I think It was really interesting for me to think about that in the context of, you know, think about perceptions of masculinity and femininity and what it's supposed to look like in the context of, you know, medieval feudal England, because the fact is, is that it hasn't changed that much. We still, you know, we still have people in America going like, you know, boys can't wear skirts and they can't play with Barbies or, you know, women need to return to a sense of, you know, domesticity those arguments have not ended. And so to be able to look at that and sort of create a parallel to the way that parents still continue to control their children, whether it's around who they can have relationships with or what they can do with their bodies or how they can express their gender, all of that stuff is is still there, even though Birdie's experiencing it at this very specific time in history. And with the character of Birdie, there's there's a lot of delicacy in the way that you've written her willfulness and her rambunctiousness in the fact that it's actually something that 
you know, even when people around her have criticisms of it, it also really endears her to people, you know, and we see that through the huge sense of community of people who follow her dad when he goes after her and who are all there rooting for her at the end. Um, and so what was a lot of the delicacy you found in in really making a very strong-willed character, but also finding what's the charming, charismatic element of what that looks like on screen? It's a great question. It's definitely something we talked about because we wanted to have her be a person who pushed back and made demands of the world. But at the same time, what comes with that kind of willfulness as a kid is a lack of understanding that the people all around you are having experiences of their own. And so that willfulness can look a lot like brattiness or self-involvement. And Bertie also is in this very privileged position, even though she sees her life as she's caged you know, one of her friends is a milkmaid, one of her friends is a goat herd who has to, you know, sleep outside. Like she's not necessarily understanding that the ex- she's fetishizing the experience of these young peasants because she thinks it's freedom, not thinking that like, but actually they have to be cold at night. And so, and don't, and not, you know, don't have the food that they need. And so it was a dance to try to make sure that Birdie had all of that teenage passion and intensity, but also kind of grew and changed as the script. I think the thing we settled on was that she had to grow and change as the script went on and start to understand that the other people around her were suffering in their own ways and were beautiful in their own ways. And so it was very much about that arc and making sure that she, I tend to not, you know, people talk a lot about sort of likability and female characters. And so I tend to want to push back at that. But then I also always have to remember that I want to leave my characters in a different place when I found than I found them. Like even if they are complex and problematic and have their own um, lack of self awareness, that hopefully at the end of their journey, they've experienced you know true human growth. And with the specificity of the fact that she's a 14-year-old girl, but in a very specific time period in the 13th century, um, was was that something, I know you did a huge amount of research at various stages for a lot of facets of this project, was the aspect of finding what does a teenage girl look like and what's her emotional plane as a character and her understanding and her worldview, something that really came through the research or more through just the emotional understanding and the emotional connection to this character? A great question. And, you know, something that we definitely did was, you know, before I ever, before I ever um, started put pen to paper, I did speak with my historical consultant, Helen Castor, and ask her a number of questions about exactly who a character like this would be at this time in history, what her days would be like, what the domestic sphere looked like at this point, what because the thing is is that we have such a focus on the history of you know um the crusades or you know the religious history of england or who was the king and who succeeded him but the actual day-to-day pattern of domestic life which is what keeps the world going has so often been ignored by the history books and so what i loved about talking to helen was that she really came at history from this very feminist perspective that it was just as important to know, you know, how women cleaned the house, how often they bathed and how often they did their laundry, as it is to know, you know, the inner workings of the royal court. And so um, for us, it was very much about finding out 
who, what Bertie's days would have been like, what more when is her and Nanny's days would have been like, what her mother's days would have been like. And then try to understand, you know, what it was she was revolting against. And what I really came to feel was that she was revolting against the kind of, you know, she's keeping this diary um, of her days and she's looking to, to be diverted because the days kind of are endless in that they, they all tend to look the same and they're full of, you know, the expectation that she's going to learn to keep the house the same way that her mother did learn to take care of the castle the same way that her mother did sewing, spinning, cleaning, making soap. And she has a dream of disrupting this and living a very, very different kind of life. And so her willfulness and her passion comes from a desire to disrupt the monotony, especially because she sees so many people getting to live what she sees as these um, grand and adventurous lives. And the only difference is that they were born male and she was born female. And I love that you're bringing up Helen Caster there because I know that you also worked incredibly closely with her on a lot of the script details where she would essentially go through and and kind of flag any details that didn't feel completely true to form. But in part of the lens and the way that you've told this story is being very true to the time period, but through a modern lens. So allowing yourself to create this structure, but then also allowing yourself ways in which you break away. And so as you were working with her through the script development process, what was that, that writing journey for you of writing things that had more of a a rigid structure and then finding where you wanted to find those areas of looseness along the way as well? These are such great questions. So Helen and I spoke at length about the script at a few different phases. And what I loved is that she was not a historian who was obsessed with sort of making sure that everything was exactly puritanical. She wanted me to have the information so that I wanted to deviate from it, I could. So for example, she'd be as specific as saying, okay, you say pajamas here, but people didn't wear pajamas to sleep. But I think it could be a really fun fashion choice if this is what you want to do. Things things that are that small and things as big as explaining to me the complexity of dowries and how money exchanged hands between families that were having um, a marital dynamic. And it's funny, you know, people have called me out for little things. Like someone was like, they're looking through an eyeglass, but those actually weren't that looking through a telescope, but those actually weren't invented until the 16th century. Or someone noted like, that's a bound book. I don't think they had bound books. I got to rebut that one because I said, actually it was bound with string. It did not have a spine. We know that. But, um, but I think what I wanted to make sure was that the, the, their broad strokes were true to the period and that we had enough really specific period details to let you know what the world at that time felt like. But then also there are certain things that we can't know and certain things we can't mimic. For example, if this movie were completely accurate, the characters would be speaking Middle English in Chaucerite English, and we wouldn't be able to understand a word that they said. And since this isn't, you know, a, a Mel Gibson movie, I decided not to speak in an ancient language and subtitle it. But um, but I think that when you have the knowledge, it makes you feel free to break away and make your own choices and decisions. And that was really thrilling. And it was also thrilling to work with people like Julian Day and Cape Quinn and Andrea Matheson, who did my costumes and sets, who did such incredible amounts of research, but then also injected their own sense of play into it so that we found a color palette and a spirit together 
that we really wanted to bring it out of the kind of drab grays and browns that we've seen in so many medieval films and inject color because it's another thing that's been lost to history is that, you know, medieval homes we're full of color. It's just that we tend to look at, you know, see monks in an abbey or men fighting in a battle. And we don't get to see like the beautiful worlds that that women created. And in, in terms of the comedy of, of the film as well, you've also really used it as a self-reflective mirror on the time period itself. So there's moments where it's calling out, you know, again, historically specific details, like when Birdie is talking about her uncle played by Joe Alwyn, and she's like, oh, if only he was my cousin instead of my uncle, then everything would be fine, which was a factual accuracy of the time period. Um, and so how did you also want to use comedy within the time period to kind of intersperse some of those details for the audience, but also kind of turn a mirror on a lot of the instances of that? Well, I'm glad that you liked that because some there were definitely some audience members who were like, crush on your uncle. But the fact is, is like, those were the rules of the time. You couldn't marry your uncle, but you could marry your cousin. And and families, because of the desire to keep lineages pure, the desire to keep it, meaning the aristocracy, there was plenty of familial intermarrying. I mean, that's like, the that was the history of that time. And what we wanted to do was show some of the th- aspects. For that joke, for me, was so important because it showed some of the aspects of medieval culture that we would not embrace today, say having a crush on or marrying a family member, but then seeing it through the lens of any teenage girl, like her crush on her uncle is similar to a young girl having a crush on a member of a boy band. Like for her, she doesn't have, you know, posters of the Backstreet Boys. I'm showing my age, Um, but she, the person that she sees and kind of valorizes happens to be, you know, the most beautiful man in her family who she's going to get to meet. And so it was really fun to kind of take those things that were distinctly medieval and then kind of comment on them through a modern lens. And it is such a fun, I think it's a time period that inherently lends itself to comedy. There's a reason Monty Python is a classic, like everything from the silhouette of their outfits to the words that they use, which all sound like they're from Lord of the Rings to the foods that they ate. Like it is a distinctly funny time period. Lots of like body humor, lots of, you know, barfing and farts, which isn't my usual game, but you know, had to try it here. Um, So that was definitely a joy was just the inherent goofiness of the medieval atmosphere. And there's also a lot of inherent sadness. Right. And and you very much allowed for both of those beats of inherent sadness and, and more emotional moments to coexist within singular scenes alongside the comedy. And, um, you know, even just thinking about the scene where she's in the room where her mother's giving birth or her reaction when she hears that they're having another child because the trauma of child loss has affected her as much as it has her parents in their relationship. Um, and so how did you also really want to utilize that aspect? It was important to me that we really one thing is that even though this film I wanted it to be for people of all ages I also really wanted to capture exactly how challenging it would have been to be a woman in that time and the lack of control that women had over their bodies and their fates because that's still being echoed now but the the trauma of being in a body that got its period but 
you lived in a culture where nobody talked about that and it was secretive and sex was shameful, which left you in, you know, Birdie doesn't know what's happening when she gets her period. She's in pure terror, which is why it was so important to me to see that moment and really see it and see the blood because I felt as though we wanted to be in Birdie's head. And similarly with the two scenes where um, Billy Piper's character um, gives birth, um, it was really important to me that you felt the intensity of what a kind of unmanaged, unmedicated birth would look like, but also the ingenuity of, you know, midwifery was already a very well-established practice then. And the fact that, I mean, lots of children, unfortunately, there was an incredibly high infant mortality rate at that time, but also the fact that so many children were born successfully was a miracle and a credit to the ingenuity of women. And it was amazing to shoot those scenes and you know to find details like for example in the first scene billy's sitting on a birthing stool which is a stool and you can't see that has a hole in it so it puts you in a position to sit on the stool and the child could actually come out through the hole in the stool which is wild and actually to find out that lying on your back in the hospital is a construct of modern medicine and it was actually a way to kind of restrain women and put them in a sublimated position. Like in medieval times, women did not give birth on their back. They often gave birth on a stool on all fours or the detail of the birthing ropes on Billy's bed, which when I found out about those, I thought, oh my God, we have to see those, which is those ropes that allow you to hold yourself up and be in this kind of position of power. And so it was interesting to see that there was this tragedy to it. Yes, many people lost children, but also women were able to give birth in these rooms surrounded by other women with these tools that allowed them to do it from a position of strength. And so there was so much beauty in that to me too. And and you're bringing up as as well there the the concept of the way that we really come into Birdie's world and her perspective throughout the story. And one of the tools for that is the narration of the diaries that she's writing in those pages. And, you know, it really allows the audience to feel like her closest confidant, but also because of who she is as a character, it equally feels like she would tell anybody all of these things that she's writing down at the same time. So did you want the the language of that narration to kind of mirror precisely the language that she uses in the world or were there slight inflections and differences and variances that you wanted to have for it being written thoughts? Well, these are such great questions and thank you for such thoughtful and thorough questions. You know, I wanted to have that narration largely because the book, when I fell in love with it, was because of Birdie's incredible first person voice and the, how close it made you feel to her. And so I knew that in adapting it, we had to feel that first person intensity and and that first person specificity that comes from the book and allows us to really get to know who this character is. And so a lot of that comes from the book, but then there's a lot of it that was also written specifically for the film, um, but kind of in the style of and in an ode to the original work that Karen Cushman did. And I think what I love about having the tool of the narration is that Birdie can um, either enhance what she's saying on screen or she can contradict it. And we can understand that there's moments where she can't say what she's thinking, but the narr- the first person diary narration allows her to like kind of offer her truth in the same scene. And we get to understand the difference between who she could be to others and who she can be to herself. 
And equally, there's there's moments where it kind of changes the perspective of how we're watching a certain scene. So if we take the moment where she's like, oh, it's such hypocrisy because they call me, you know, insolent, but have they seen their drunken friends and the way that they behave? Um, you know, and that suddenly shifts the way that you're watching all the other characters in a moment. So how did you also want to use it as a tool to, you know, take a scene that you know audiences will watch in a, in a linear fashion and then think, well, what's the 14-year-old girl's perspective in a medieval time period and the way that that can make an audience receive this differently? A hundred percent. And I'm so glad you experienced it that way. I think it allows us to look at scenes that we would have a specific understanding of and then really see them through her eyes. And it was also important to often just take the camera and put it where Birdie's, you know, eyes would be so we can kind of see, literally see the world as she is seeing it. And I think that, you know, for her, there's just so many, I think all teenagers look around and they're like, who's in charge here? Because these adults don't seem like they have it handled. And they ask questions about the world and they ask why, and they wish things would be done differently. And it's kind of the great joy of teenagers is they haven't yet learned to just accept things as they are. They're old enough to have really strong opinions, but they're young enough to really believe in their own power to change things. And we could all stand to hold on to that a little bit more. And so it was really, really fun to be in her mind as she took in all of these events and tried to like put together a picture of like what the world had to offer her. And she sort of concludes that it's not much. And so she's going to make her own. And and as kind of a side question, I did want to ask about one of the music choices in the fact that it's so referential to have the use of Honey to the Bee as a cover version whilst having yeah. Billy Piper in your movie. And I was just interested in the genesis of that particular choice and where that came from. Well, I love when people notice it. I was a big Honey to the Bee fan. I visited England with my family in eighth grade and saw it on like MTV, UK MTV. And I was like, um, this song is so cool. And I'm taking the CD back to all my friends. And then, you know, then I followed Billy's career as an actor and she's absolutely brilliant. You know, her work on stage and Yerma, her, her show, I Hate Susie. I mean, she has, she's so carved such a beautiful and specific niche for herself. Her directorial debut was just completely astounding. And so, you know, I think that for me, the biggest thing was that I wanted the music choices to feel like they were kind of curated by a teenager, but to go across time and across genre, songs that would really ignite a teenage girl. And I think Billy was such an icon for other teenage girls. And that song is so great because it kind of captures the beginnings of, you know, a first or new crush or what it feels like to kind of be coming into your sexuality. And so as I was putting the, putting it together, I thought, okay, I want to use this. I've got to use this. And, but I didn't know if Billy would approve it or if she would like the idea or if she would go like, no, you know, I'm an adult now, leave me this at the end of this, but she has such a great sense of humor. And she really understood what the song was doing and how I wanted to use it. And so she went, go for it. And my um, husband, Lewis Felber and his producing partner, Matt Alchin did a cover, which their friend Misty Miller sang and it was so funny because Billy was like, God, this really makes me reevaluate the song. It's pretty good. And I was like, no, it's the best. And so, and it was fun because, you know, um, Lou had a bunch of young people playing instruments and strings on it. And it was like, there's this great um, Hayden, our cellist was like, this song was so formative to me. I can't believe I'm getting to play strings on Honey to the Bee. <laughs> I love that. And and lastly, you know, going back to, we were talking at the beginning a bit about Andrew Scott and the development of his character. And in essence, you're taking him from someone who cares about his daughter and loves her 
but just is so rambunctious in the fact that she needs to be married off, you know, not just for herself in society, but also it's something that the family really needs from a financial position as well to someone who's not a natural sword fighter or, you know, physical person in that way, but is willing to enter a duel and lay down his life for her in order to bring her back from this marriage that he's placed her into. Um, And so I was just interested in how you created a lot of that journey and that arc, because, you know, you can't suddenly have him shift into a different perspective in one scene. It's something that's gradually been building throughout the movie to that point. Well, I think that Andrew was so thoughtful in making sure that in every scene, even the ones where he was acting with some brutality, that you could feel his humanity peeking through. He gave you those soft moments and those quiet moments that let you understand that these weren't easy choices for him. And so, so much of that shift is, I credit to Andrew's performance and also to the kind of conversations we had in and around rehearsal, because in a great way, Andrew is not interested in playing characters that feel one-dimensional. And I think the first iteration of The Dad that I wrote, I'll admit, the first inter- iteration of Lord Rollo, didn't have as much humanity. It was so through Bertie's eyes, and she so saw her dad as just like a savage beast, that it didn't have the humanity that I would want it to. And what I love is that Andrew just brought like this, this sweetness and this goofiness and this kind of really... um playful yet um profound um like thought process to the character and I really don't have enough words for for what a wonder he is to work with and and he and Billy together I think they also really found um a sense of what the marriage was like between the parents which gives us so much insight into each of their characters to understand that they actually have so much love for each other as as spouses no matter what they've been through and so I really I think anyone would be lucky to have Andrew Scott and Billy Piper as their parents I wish they were my parents I I love that well it's such a wonderful film and I so appreciate you talking with me about it and your questions were wonderful thank you for giving it such a close watch